When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we are coming into chapter 38. We're oh, no. rounding the edge. We're coming to that final set of chapters. Only one more chapter left. Uh, before the book is finished, and then we have to figure out what to do next. Oh, no. Maybe there's going to be more book. But, Maybe there's a hidden chapter somewhere. What if we read it backwards? We could We could just start over. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, we're not, not going to start over. <laughs> uh, so we come out of the last chapter. Well, it, bring us to it. We've, we've come out of the last chapter, and, and where are we coming from coming into this one? Well, Parzival's found himself in that egg-shaped line of game consoles and computers and he said it was over a hundred different tables with consoles and their full accompaniment of games and accessories and things Mm -hmm. realizes that it's in the shape of an egg and realizes and he determines that Halliday's Easter egg is somewhere in that room and that's where Mm -hmm. we are now and now he's got to figure out where the egg is he is within the Easter egg. Like the, the, the fact that this whole room is filled with computers is, is, isn't the egg. It is, it is, there is an egg within the egg, I guess is the best way to put it. He knows it's somewhere in there. It's not like it's going to be through another door or up a ladder, through a hatch in the pirate ship where X marks the spot. No, it's somewhere in there. X marks the spot. So the first thing yeah. he tries to do is see if his buddies can hear him. And to, and to no avail. Yeah. This is the first time, really. I wouldn't say the first time. This is throughout the, throughout the adventure. He has had his friends, to a certain extent, on and off in his life, kind of coming in and helping out or, or, or somewhat intersecting. But in this moment where now he has settled on the fact that him and the other Gunters, the other high, well, high, f- other high three, are in it with him. He is now utterly alone. He has to solve this last part of the game truly by himself. And this is a bit like when you're riding your bike and your dad's helping you out and he's pushing you and he's got one hand on you. And then in the moment where you think that that you're still being helped, you look back and there's no hand there helping you. And there's a moment of of sheer terror followed by that moment of excitement, which is I'm flying free and by myself. I'm doing this thing. Yay. Yay. 
Chris rode his bike. So <laughs> here he is, really without any help at all. And and the you know the disadvantage here, and I shouldn't say disadvantage because it's really not necessarily a disadvantage. But if if it was Sorrento, he would have his oologist surround him. They would simply come and speak into his headset, you know, or they would simply speak to him, you know. Cr- so we so we think. Yeah, well, you know, he could. They could just say, bring him up to my room, bring them to my chamber. Technically speaking, I suppose Parzival could have, that could have happened to him as well. That's my kind of question. If the way that Og was patching in the rest of the high five into Parzival's ears is the same way that the Sixers were doing that, would that have effectively cut off the Sixers from direct line of communications with Sorrento and vice versa? And I keep going back and forth in this one because if the rigs are hacked, then mm-hmm. it shouldn't matter. But somehow this one point in time in the uh, simulation, communications are completely cut off. Yeah, and that's the weird thing, right? Because the, the rigs that Parcival were in were hacked because even though his friends were out, he could still hear them. Yeah. Right. So his rig was hacked probably the same way. But but the gist is that they could have done it IRL. They could have come into his room and spoke to him in person. Yep. Pajamas and, and, and all. For, yeah. And so, I mean, it's just right down the fucking hall. They could have just come out of their rooms and come in there and been like, what's up? And same for Sorrento as well. So he's looking at all of these systems. And now and now we're kind of in the part of the book that I love the most, which is. We're inside of this troubleshooting. You're thinking to yourself, or at least I was thinking to myself, I'm surrounded by these systems. All of them are off. What am I going to do next? And the neat thing here is that is that Ernest Klein doesn't just jump to the answer immediately. Like he he at least allows you to experience the thought flow where Parzival would go. And and I hearken back to like way early on where I'm reading through the book. And this is the part I love about this book. And and it doesn't jump to the obvious. Like the obvious is wrong in this situation. You're you're gonna you're gonna struggle a little bit. And you're struggling with the character. It also as a plot device helps bring the Sixers a little bit closer to his lead. So it narrows the gap some. Yeah. Yeah. So there's sort of a feeling of of rush or panic that not only are you trying to troubleshoot something, but you have you're on the clock. You got to get it done sooner rather than later because somebody else is right behind you, possibly experiencing the same thing you're experiencing. The contest is not over. So what's the first thing that he does in this room, this egg shaped, this egg shaped museum of antiquated gaming systems and computer systems? His first instinct is to run over to the Atari 2600, which is a very reasonable thing to do. He tries to turn it on, but nothing happens. Womp womp. What are you going to do? And you just kind of fidget with it, hit the switch, you know, the little toggle switches that are on them. Kick it a little bit, yeah, smack it. And then he just goes around and realizes that the only thing that's working is the MSA 8080. It happens to be the same computer that was used in War Games by Matthew mm-hmm. Broderick's character. I love that computer. Like, that was the same kind of computer that I had, only his setup was much more complex. So he had the modem where you had the actual handset that rested on the, the two little the two little cups that the, the headphone would rest in versus plugged directly into the wall. I thought that was just cool as shit, right? This is a very visceral form factor where a physical headset sets into this this carriage, if you will, to take in the data from the head, you know, the speaker and to transmit the data through the microphone. 
in the headset. It was just just really super cool. Uh, assuming I'm remembering that correctly, but it was just so very visceral, very physical. But then you have this green screen monitor. And if you've never dealt with the green screen monitor, you're blessed. But it's just this, it, it seems almost cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, because that's what you had. You had this monochrome monitor, and it was either this crappy orange or it was this toxic green. <laughs> that's really, it just, it had this, this bright, glowing nuclear green. And I and War Games was one of those first. Did you see War Games? I mean, I guess it's a dumb question. Have you seen War Games? Yeah, I've seen it a couple of times. I okay, saw. Okay. I watched this movie before the book was written. It was a before it was a glimmer in Ernest Klein's eye. A lot of the movies that I experienced, they experienced through HBO. And as a kid, HBO, you just turn on, and wherever you were is where you were. Like, you could see the schedule on HBO between shows that would tell you what's coming next, or, you know, uh, but. But so I seen war games from beginning to end for sure. And then I had, you know, seen it dozens of times in pieces, just, you know, coming into the middle of the movie through HBO. And I just loved this. If anything, this fueled my inspiration for computer technology and computer science as a kid, because there was just this neat feeling so it shaped you? of digging around in the insides saying, well, it's. I just thought it was cool. Like, it was just freaking cool. Like, just, you know, playing with circuit boards, opening shit up, looking at the greens. And, Starting and the thermonuclear war. Of... Exactly. Did you ever do that? Did I ever what? Almost start global thermonuclear war. Uh, uh, for real? For realsies? No. For real, real, not for no. play play. Oh, I was just play play, you know. I'd be like, oh, okay. I wonder if I can rack up numbers this time. Ah, uh, I only got a million out of that city. I got ripped off. This is why they didn't make a movie about you. Yeah, precisely. I just, I, <laughs> it's not nearly as interesting. Yeah. Uh, the only Whopper I saw was from Burger King. Yeah, I think we all saw that a few times. <laughs> so, it, so, yeah, so I love this fact that, you know, War Games was one of those movies that kind of allowed you to troubleshoot with Matthew Broderick's character. He's sitting there. And he is sort of, he's challenged. It's, it's a password challenge. And you've got to put in this password. And he just can't figure it out. So what's the first thing he does? He's, he goes to the library. He does all the research he can about, uh, what was the what was the name of the guy that had created this computer? Oh, Professor Vulcan? Thank you. He did all the research he can about his life to try to get to know him so that he could get that password. A little and bit then, of a parallel, huh? A little bit. Yeah, precisely. And... In coming to know, try, in coming, trying to get the password, you had to know the man. And isn't that kind of the cool thing? It's, 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 uh, it, it pulls you through someone's life. And it's, it's the simplest way to do that, that there's something you want, but to get it, you have to know the person. And I can't think of a better way to become immortalized than to, to toss something out there, to fish, if you will. And to allow somebody to latch onto it and then to reel them through your life and get them to know you. And that th that is the only way to for them to get what they want. And having done so, they've grown as a person. And I think that's just, and I guess that's really what this whole book is about. And so why don't we go through the list of passwords? Let's do that. Let's, let's go through the list of passwords. What does he try first? 
Well, I, I think he starts, you know, closest to the chest, sort of. Uh, he starts with Anorak, which doesn't work. And God, right. this must have been really annoying because, like, every time it didn't work, you had to unplug and then reboot the computer. Ugh. Well, uh, that sucks. Yeah, uh, a little bit. So then he tries Halliday and no hey, dice. Back there. up a quick second. Back up a quick second. He has okay. to unplug and reboot the computer. Yes. That's, that's un- okay. Go on. That's, 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 I forgot about that. Totally that, forgot about that. Because uh, otherwise, he could just go, you know, back and forth. Eventually, he says it took, he was like in there for 10 minutes. So, like, something had to take up that time. Right. So then he tries Halliday, and to use his words, no dice. And that's the point where he realizes that in the movie War Games, which is what the computer that he's using was featured in, the mm-hmm. password that gave access to the Whopper machine was Joshua, which was Professor Falcon's son's name and happened to be the person who he loved most in the world. So then he goes through a list of names that he thinks would be appropriate. He tries Og, Ogden, Kira. He tried his parents' names, which we are not given, other than maybe, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Halliday. And then he tries Zaphod, which was his pet fish, mm-hmm. which I thought was a cool name for a fish, given that it's a nod to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This guy boring you? Why don't you talk to me instead? I'm from a different planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zaphod mm-hmm. Bibobrox, the president of the galaxy. The fact that it was a fish I thought was kind of cool because in that movie and book is the babblefish. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. Then he tried the name Tiberius as a password because it was a ferret he once owned. So the only thing I could think of for Tiberius was James Tiberius Kirk. Mm-hmm. I can't think of another reference to Tiberius. I don't know if you did. That's the first one that came to mind. In fact, I figured that would be plainly obvious. Right, yeah. right. So, and then I was like, well, ferret seems really kind of out there, not very common. Then I looked up, well, where have we seen ferrets in films? And actually, the list is interesting. I think the most interesting ones on the list that I found were the Big Lebowski. Right. Wasn't it the, was it the bad guys that had the... I don't remember. The, the ferret. Maybe, yeah. The ones that, like, cut off fingers and shit and sent it to people. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. It's been a while, too. And uh, the other one that I thought was noteworthy on the list was Lord of the Rings. I think I think Harry Potter you'd mentioned, or you'd, you'd noted down. Yeah, but I don't think of Harry Potter as something that, it's a little bit far removed from 80s pop culture. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Whereas Lord of the Rings uh, definitely isn't. It's, it, it definitely goes back much further. So, yeah. yeah, I get you. Starship Troopers is also on the list. Beastmaster, that was a good one. Uh, Kindergarten Cop, probably not relevant to this story here in Ready Player One, but yeah, so there's been a few. Okay. Okay, so I can kind of see why he might trigger in on that, and I can also see why uh, it would make sense for him to have had a a ferret, it just in general, because of the, the different references, the different 80s references, and, and some of the more pop culture references that coincidentally had a ferret in it. So I- I'm wondering if maybe there's some type of common link between the people who own the ferrets that maybe is shared with Halliday. Like maybe they were all kind of very introverted and loners and that kind of thing. But I did not have the time to do that kind of analysis here. Well, and when you think about about the kind of behavior that, that ferrets exhibit, ferrets are kind of like rats collectors in that they will steal shit. They're also very intelligent. They can get into stuff for a very short period of time. I, I, I had a ferret. No way. Why is it that like everything in this book seems to relate back to something in your life? Like you've always had a, the same job at some point in your life or... The same pet. 
or <laughs> it, is your password Tiberius? No, it is not. Was it? No, ever? it is not. But but we should freaking talk about that because when you start thinking about these passwords, so the first thing that came to mind was these passwords are incredibly easy. But but before we get to that point, though, <laughs> you certainly couldn't use them as your bank password. No, I wouldn't recommend it. But but we, before we get to that though. How did we drill down to the final password? The one that works. The one that works. Somehow, for some reason, a line from Ogden Morrow's biography popped into his head. The opposite sex made Jim extremely nervous, and Kira was the only girl that I ever saw him speak to in a relaxed manner. But even then, it was only in character as Anorak during the course of our gaming sessions. And he would only address her as Lucosia, the name of her D&D character. So that's when he tries Lucosia. And he hits enter, and then every system in the room powers itself on, whirring disk drives and beeping from the the self-tests and other boot-up sounds. We all know those sounds. So I just want to make sure that I I get this correct. The name of of the girl that he pretty much loved turns his systems on. Yeah. Fitting? All right. Which, this goes back to that conversation between Parzival and Ogden right before the the big battle starts where Parzival asks Ogden what happened between them and he says it was Kira, his wife, because found out that or realized that Halliday had a crush on her and that Mm -hmm. was what kind of fired them out of their friendship and eventually Ogden leaving uh, Gregarious Games. So I think it's at that point in the book that you kind of first find out that Jim had a thing for her in, in, in more than just a, like the boyhood crush thing, because way earlier in the book, when we were being introduced to her as a character, we knew that everybody in their little D&D group had a little bit of a crush on her. Right, right, right. So this is, that was really the first time we kind of knew that there was more to it than that, which gets hard to remember because we've just read this book so many times, you just kind of, you know, it's ingrained in us now. So it's really tough to keep that fact that we don't know that till much later. We don't know it right. for sure until much later. Right. So an interesting thing here is that the, the password itself, Lucosia, is by today's standards an incredibly weak password. And if you were to try to brute force this password, depending on the site you go to calculate this, and there are a number of ways that you can calculate this, and it has to do with sort of the permutations, it both, you know, randomly going through, using dictionary words to kind of go through and find stuff, using text from from a, a number of novels. And and what, what a password-breaking system tries to do is first off go through and find the patterns, and then it tries to go through all of the words within those word patterns, and then it goes through all the letters within those word patterns and tries to find the alternates. And what I mean by alternates is you might have like a lowercase a, an uppercase a, you might have an at symbol for the letter a, and that's a a variety of permutations for a given position within a word that it's going to try out for a single word. There's a lot of crunching that goes on here. But it happens very fast, and it can go through and it can crunch out, and the more bitch-ass basic your password is, the easier it's going to be for a modern system like today. We're not talking about 20 years in the future like this book is set in, which would be way faster, mind you. We're talking about today. It would take, for Lucosia, depending on the system, it was anywhere from 16 hours to six hours to bust up to do a brute force on that password. That ain't that long. 
that is not long at all. But here's the thing, though, is that you're in VR. So to do sort of a brute force in VR, what you would end up doing is you would use something like a macro recorder. What a macro recorder does is it records your mouse actions, your your keyboard actions and, and the general position of where your mouse is on the screen to record all of that. And then you hit a play button and it re-simulates that over and over and over again. And then you in introduce a system that does your brute force and then that pops in the different passwords when it gets to that place. So in this situation, when you mentioned that he had to go turn off the computer and reboot it, that makes that six hours much, much longer. So that's, that is sort of a, a prevention of a brute force attack by adding some time delay. And in fact, if you've got an iPhone that this time delay is already baked in, every time you enter in the wrong password into your iPhone, it takes a little bit longer. But by the sixth or seventh time, it is definitely noticeable. In fact, this is one of the things that pissed off the government because they were trying to go to Apple to say, give us a back door so that we don't, we can get into the past. So we can brute force this phone open. And they were like, we don't have a back door and we're not going to develop a back door for you. You know, and it was pretty much impossible because they could have like a little system that's like a mechanical finger, if you will, that could go through and pop in different combinations. But the fact that it would take incrementally longer to do that made it. Well, it would just take for fucking ever. That's really what it kind of boils well, down well, to. Plus, like, after that, the 10th the attempt, it kind of locks itself out, right? I'd, I've not made it to the 10th attempt, and I don't know what the current password... I, I, I don't know if it comes back and says you're going to have to wait a period of time. I, I, I've, not, I've, not, I've not checked it out. I'm pretty sure that was one of the reasons why things were so critical when they were trying to hack the San Bernardino iPhones, was mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the FBI had already tried, like, six or seven passwords to get in and they were like oh we're at the end of our rope here we better uh we better figure out how we to better get this. apple to help us <laughs> we better try and get that that back door but the passwords here are very very basic they're very straightforward but the fact that there's sort of this delay makes it difficult to brute force this even using something to the equivalent of a, a macro recorder which is, is kind of interesting because initially I was going to be like, that password sucks. Like Sorrento could break in, do a do a brute force attack on that system and have it in a matter of hours. You just have to wait, just be a matter of time. He'd have it in less than a day. But the fact that you got to reboot that makes that uh, considerably longer. Well, yeah. Uh, a lot longer. And he's got a room full of experts trying to give him a prioritized list of passwords. That don't hurt. So let me ask you a question. <laughs> what passwords can I ask this? What passwords have you? Are your passwords personal? Let me ask you this: Like, if you were Halliday, if I'm trying to get to know Aaron, like, like all of a sudden Aaron had a billion dollars, and you're like, Chris, you can have it if you can guess my password. Is this something that I would be able to guess, knowing you as a person? No, probably not. Um, well, first of all, I have many, many, many passwords, and I use a password manager to generate passwords for oh. a lot of sites. Okay. Those, I don't even fucking know. So <laughs> so I would need to guess the password to the password manager. Yeah. I get you. you. You said I might be able to guess it? if I don't think you would because... <laughs> I'm just fucking... Uh, no. Uh, because there's this lag in having to reboot the computer, we've pretty much gone past the point where where if it was Sorrento in there and he tried to brute force it, tried to run some sort of macro software on top of it, that would not work here. Because he would be doing it for fucking ever. 
he would need to have dozens and dozens of people in the same room trying it at the same time and then having to stop and wait a minute and a half or two minutes to reboot. And those that those computers were not fast to boot up. They're they're not like our systems today. Yeah. Uh it it could take minutes. This is one of those instances where if you're under the gun, you need to know your shit. You need to have done your research because you don't have the luxury of the speed of trying new passwords. You need to you need to know. Yeah. Your, your quickest path here is going to be knowing the person. Uh, and I've had a lot of passwords in the past. And and as far as hackability is concerned, I, well, here, I'll just I'll tell you what. Let's just try this. Let's let's test our passwords, if you will. Go to howsecureismypassword.net. And this is actually sponsored by Dashlane. So we're not getting paid by Dashlane. I use Dashlane. You use Dashlane. We're not getting this. Is, it just so happens that Dashlane is a, a, a good password management system, but there are a lot of good ones out there. So I'll put mine in. I like the disclaimer that says, we're going to use your password and hack your account. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to do that. What? <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't work for mine. So let's, let's have a little contest here. I want to I hear how long would it take to brute force your system, to brute force your password. Okay. Now, mind you, this site doesn't tell you what algorithm it uses to crunch, but we're, we're just, the fact that we're both using it, we can kind of both use it as sort of an equal standard. It might take a little more, it might take a little bit less, depending on the system and how you do it, how it gets crunched, but we're going to use their, their means of calculating this out. Okay, so what's yours? Mine is seven quadrillion years. Okay, you beat me. Mine's 34,000 years. <laughs> oh, did yours have any special characters? Yeah. I, I used the one that I use for one of the sites that I frequent most because, again, it's different for every site. But there are some similar patterns. But, yeah, right on, right on. But it still take a freaking long time to get both of ours. So your password is tight. So... So really, what it comes down to is once you start adding extra characters, that's where it starts to go up exponentially. Yep. Right, right. The more So it doesn't, and I've heard this before, is that you're actually better off like using like your favorite song lyric with as many characters as you can fit mm -hmm. versus one that has uppercase, lowercase, special symbols, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. You want it to be you're memorable. And once it's memorable, it's it doesn't take, it, you can make it as long as you want. And I think... I think favorite phrase or, or uh, what did you say, like a verse in a song? That's fucking perfect. Yeah, like the, I think it might have actually been a blog post from Dashlane that said, like, you should just use, like, you know, a song lyric or something. So for reference, I'm putting in my new work computer password. And uh, that one is sort of based on a song lyric or words or something. And that one, it's not very complex. But it's 609 million years to crack. That's still pretty good. That's still pretty damn good. Okay, so he realizes he's been in the he's been in the room for 10 minutes, uh, and that the Sixers are probably hot on his tail. That he feels like maybe he's burnt up a lot of time guessing. He's tried Lucasio at all the machines pop to life. What what happens after that? What what is the next step in this this journey? I, he goes back to his original instinct, and he runs over to the Atari and grabs Adventure, which makes perfect sense here right his original instinct was to go to the atari 2600 and he still goes back there it's a very smart move because as we all know the very first easter egg was in this game and it's a wonderful wonderful tie-in back to 
the what is it the planet Middletown mm-hmm. or wh- whatever planet the uh, instances of Middletown were on, because as we, everyone might recall, it had all the different Atari games there, but what was missing? Adventure. Right. People put significance into that, and it might have been one of those things where you didn't realize it back uh, when you first read it, but every subsequent time you're like, aha, that's why it wasn't included. And that's kind of neat that, that you use an example of that sort of negative space concept that, you know, you can see the words not in what's been written, but what's not been written. And in this situation, it, it draws attention to the fact that of all the games that are there, that here is a game that is important and is not there. And yet here it is in this room. So you're thinking, ah, OK, he brought that with him. That is that is in this place. And you know what? One of the things I was thinking about as far as Easter eggs is concerned is that if you've ever as a kid felt left out or maybe longing to fit in, let's just say things like Easter eggs were a way to immediately jumpstart a social inclusion, a means of having an immediate connection with someone else. There is this sort of undercurrent of being in the know that whenever you're in the know, you're part of a club. It's like having a secret handshake, if you will. And by doing so, Someone else who is in the know gets it. They're that other level of, of fan, if you will. And it gives you immediate acceptance and the ability to accept someone else. And that this entire book is very much like that. It's that anybody who gets this book is in the know, understands what a number of people went through or why they enjoyed certain things. And I think one of the things that's unique to this book is that all of the people that I've met in my personal journey of reading this book and doing this podcast and and talking to a number of people is that regardless of the diverse backgrounds, it pivots around this point of knowledge or sort of hidden lore that puts you in a select group of people who are in the know. And you don't have to know everything about everything, but this book covers so many things that you're in the know on something, and as a result, you've got a connection to someone else who who is also in the know. Think about how easy it was to connect with everybody when we were in Columbus. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And the and the unique number of the unique types of people that were brought together at that book signing. Uh, and you know that you're all there for sort of this this common reason or common interest. And I think it's even broader than, say, like when you go to a convention, because in a convention, you've got a track for Star Trek, you've got a track for Star Wars, you've got a track for The Hobbit. You've got a number of tracks that kind of put you into groups of interest that you can then pivot around. But because this book really covers a lot of those commonalities, it becomes sort of like the hub to a number of, of spokes that come off of it. And everybody draws back to the hub. And, and as a result, you don't have to be into Star Trek to be a part of a person who is into Star Trek's life because you're, you're connected by that hub. And this book acts as that hub. In some ways, it's not so much that everybody is sitting around the table liking all the same things, but we all like something to the same level. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what that thing is. You know, like maybe somebody's really into the John Hughes films or just 80s music. Or something like that. But we're all connected by, like you said, that kind of the central hub that is the book, which contains a lot of these references. We're all from a very diverse background. And I don't think that that anyone who initially 
put out Easter eggs was intending for that. I think they were intending to just put their name on something to say, I'm proud of this. I did this. And here's a means of recognizing the fact that I did this. And honestly, coming from a software background, software changes. You can leave a job, have worked on a project. And if you're going to tell somebody you worked on something, it kind of helps to have that proof where you can go, well, here, do this thing and you'll see my name. And that way you're not just taking credit for something someone else did. You're literally saying, I was so integral in doing this that I left this thing in there that you can identify me by. And maybe that's what it was. It could have been that that Robin Ornette was like, well, if I ever leave Atari, I'd like to at least be able to say that that I worked on this game that was really popular and somebody else said, no, you didn't. No, really, do this thing and there's my name. So it turned into sort of could have been like a calling, a business calling card turned into this whole culture of being in the know and and then connecting around that. It's just a very strange permutation, social permutation to to this this just this little thing that somebody dropped into the code. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's my pulpit. <laughs> so let, let's go, let's go back to the book. Let's go back All to right. the egg because we're at a point now where he starts playing adventure, finds the secret room that under normal circumstances would contain the name of the creator of adventure, Warren Robinette. But instead it has an egg, the egg. What a great hiding place into the game that had the original Easter egg. It's just great. And so Parzival grabs the egg, turns back into his avatar and finds himself holding the egg back in Halliday's office Castle Anorak is restored, even though the Oasis clocks haven't struck midnight yet and everything reset. Right. And that's a that's a callback to early on when Parzival's fighting the Lich King. And and there's that, that sort of, again, kind of an Easter egg functionality where you just wait till the server resets, go back in and try again so you can, you know, do it twice a day or something along those lines. Whereas here, the, the, the assumption being that everything will go return back to its natural state at the stroke of midnight. But in this situation, what you've noted here is that that all of it's gone back to normal before midnight. Yeah, so it's kind of, I wonder if Halliday kind of realized that there was going to be a shit storm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Thattery realized that his office wouldn't exist, potentially not exist if the fight got crazy. Yeah. You know, that everything has to be back to normal in order for the next thing to happen. So the Crystal Gate Transforms into a large wooden door, which Parzival, after taking one last look in the office, you know, run, uh, opens, runs up the spiral staircase, and sees that all of Thonia has been restored, which makes sense given that everything else has been restored. Mm-hmm. While looking around the room, he sees the ornate pedestal that seems to coincidentally fit something rather egg-shaped. So he places it in this chalice, and then you get the fanfare trumpets... And he gets spooked by Anorak, who is behind him and says, Congratulations! So, there you have it. Parzival wins. Yay! Parzival! Who didn't think Parzival was going to get it? It is weird. Here's the here's the kind of the, the thing there. Is I, it's a chalice. The inside's going to look like it fits anything round. Because sure. it's a fucking chalice. 
So in this situation, the fact that he just goes up and goes, hmm, it could go in there. Well, I'm not sure that would even cross my mind. Not sure that. Well, so is there it, what what would make you think that that's where that's supposed to go? Well, I, I guess I'm just kind of like, why isn't just picking up the egg in the game enough? Yeah. This kind of leads me to what I envisioned the movie was going to do you know, long before I ever saw the movie, how I pictured this might have been portrayed in the movie. And I could kind of see it essentially the way it's portrayed in the book. But that part where he's running up the stairs holding the egg, like I could almost see that you would actually see this scene played out with Parzival running up, but he's sort of like an apparition. You can kind of see through him almost like everybody, like the, the entire race is watching him. But then you also see Sorrento's avatar like seconds behind him and they're both running up the stairs. Right. And they're both kind of sort of apparitions. Mm hmm. And you can see them both running up the stairs, and it's all about like who gets that egg in that chalice at the last second, and it's like seconds off, and like that was kind of how I originally pictured that scene playing out, because that was the only way that made sense. Like, why wouldn't just picking up the egg in the game be the point where you have won? Yeah, it is. A, it is a little weird. Like you're almost thinking, okay. It, uh, and again, this kind of harkens back to this idea that if I'm playing the game, if I'm imagining in my mind me being Parzival and me trying to troubleshoot, at what point in my mind do I feel like it's over? You yeah. know, and you just you just did the Easter egg in the game. You just went up the spiral staircase. You just went into his office. Isn't it over? No, you got to put it in a chalice. Like how maybe it was just so obvious that it's in the middle of the room. But at, I, I got to wonder maybe if at any given point that I would just be so paranoid about doing the wrong thing, like somehow being suckered into doing the wrong thing, that I might be going, this is too obvious. It seems like I should put the egg in here. I don't know if I should. Putting the egg in here might cause me to lose. Like I would totally fucking second guess myself. Well, I mean, or would you be the person that's like standing there holding the egg in the in that office? And just be like, oh, look, I won. This is great. But nothing happens. And you, and then someone else is saying, oh, well, obviously there's something else to do. Yeah. What's what's the next thing? Because he's not left. And it's opened up and he's gone into the room. So there's there's got to be a next step. You know, and the only thing I can really imagine being chalice relevant, and I've looked up, so there, there are a number of key phrases that come in when we talk about egg chalices. But to me, I, this is the first time I'd ever heard of an egg relating to a chalice. But I kind of have to wonder if this isn't sort of, um, uh, what is the best way to put it? Uh, it sort of harkens back to the Arthurian, 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 Arthurian legend where who brings back the chalice to Arthur? Parzival. Oh, snap. And, and the chalice is what Arthur needs to bring life back to the land. Right. I mean, it it's really has nothing to do with the chalice per se, but it's the fact that he's got the chalice, which, you know, in Arthurian, Arthurian legend, Arthurian, Arthurian, thank you, Arthurian legend, <laughs> catches the blood of Christ. But the, the gist here is that he goes and gets the cup and it's the process of having gotten the cup that brings life back to the land. And he's, you know, trotting back to the castle and, and everything that was dead starts to bloom and starts to grow. Literally the land is re, re revitalized when he brings the cup back to Arthur and Arthur returns back to his sort of kingly state 
as he had, I guess, been kind of rotting away in the castle. So I, when I initially thought about this, I thought that this is kind of sort of telling. It's not just putting the egg in the chalice. It's the fact that here is Parzival interacting with a chalice and at the same time in having done so, resets the castle, resets the land back to its, its beautiful state rather than its obliterated state previously. And, and I, I don't know if that's really the reason why. Maybe that's my tinfoil hat theory for this particular chapter. But uh, I, if, it, if, it is that, if that's the symbolism that Ernest Klein was going after, I dig it. I hadn't even like, thought about that as far as the, the actual grail chalice. But uh, I like it. Cool. Let's run with it. All right. Uh, so what happens? He sticks the egg in the chalice and... What, what? He sticks the egg in the chalice and... Then what? Uh, oh, it's a cliffhanger. Tune in next time to see if Chris tries to say the word Arthurian again. And find out what happens after the egg is put in the chalice. It's going to be good. It had this just bright, glowing nuclear green. Kind of the spectrum of colors of piss, right? Uh, if you're peeing the color of monochrome green, you should see your doctor immediately. That's true. Uh, maybe if you've spent a lot of time... I should go get that checked out, shouldn't I? <laughs> 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 and while you're there, you know, get other things checked out, too. Turn your head and cough. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's that time so, of year again. Uh, uh, <laughs> reel it back in. So, we have a monochrome monitor. 